Good morning. There have been more than a few times that I have seen a sticker on the back of cars that says, no bad days. And there is certainly something appealing about that mantra. Doesn't that sound good? Don't we want that? Don't we want days that are full of peace and not conflict, rest and not turmoil, health and not sickness, success, not failure, good news, not bad news? Aren't those the days we desire? Is that not a bad thing to desire good days? I don't think it's a bad desire. But the no bad days mantra runs into a problem. We'll call this problem reality. No matter how hard we try to have a grateful, hopeful, optimistic outlook on life, we are going to have days that we will not be able to regard as anything other than a bad day. So what do we do with these bad days? What do we do when we are having a bad day? Well, we are continuing our sermon series, going through a selection of the Psalms, and our sermon text today is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a little more realistic about the reality of bad days. Before we get into Psalm 22, I want you to think, if you can remember a time when you felt far from God, or as though your prayers were not being answered, have you ever been desperate for help you felt you were not receiving? Or how about this? Have you ever suffered due to the sins of others when you had not done something wrong in the situation? How should we respond when we feel this way? What do we do when we are in these situations? I think Psalm 22 provides us with some help. In this psalm, we will see David, when he was having a bad day, lament his present circumstances. But we also see him look to the past, remembering God's faithfulness of old. Ultimately, he looks to the future with confidence in the Lord's salvation. So keep these things in mind as we read Psalm 22. I'm going to read Psalm 22 and encourage you to follow along. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for his delight is in him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In this psalm, we see present pain and past faithfulness followed by future hope. First, we see present pain and past faithfulness. Really, the first 18 verses go back and forth between present pain and past faithfulness. But the psalm clearly begins with a lament, whereby David expressed anguish and pain in the present moment over his sense of being forsaken by God. He was distressed that God was not answering him, and he found no rest from his groaning. Why, God? Why do you feel so far away? Why are you not answering my prayers? Don't you see my tears? Don't you see my suffering? Do you even care? Have you ever felt this way or prayed a prayer like this? Have you ever felt God was absent or just didn't seem to care? 
Do you know what this describes at a high level? Life outside the Garden of Eden. What do I mean by that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. God made man, male and female, in his image to know him, enjoy him, obey him, and glorify him. God gave his people, Adam and Eve, a wonderful place to live, the Garden of Eden. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, living under God's rule, obeying his commands, and enjoying his presence, unfettered access to the presence of the Lord. We can only try to imagine what that was like. They fully enjoyed God's presence until they rebelled against his rule, until they decided they no longer wanted him to be king, but they wanted to be king, until they decided they wanted to decide for themselves what is good and right. They sinned against God and experienced the judgment for their rebellion. They were removed from the Garden of Eden. And since then, mankind has not enjoyed that same access to God's presence that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, where they were completely free from the presence and reality of sin. Life outside the garden is a life where God sometimes feels far away. In the first two verses, David lamented his sense of forsakenness, but did not yet provide the reason why he felt that way. Before he did, he turned his attention to the past. In verses 3 through 5, he recounted the Lord's faithfulness. Although God felt so far away, he affirmed that the Lord, Yahweh, is holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. He is the one true living God who is the maker of everyone and everything. And he chose Israel to be his people and established a covenant relationship with them. And that the, though they did not have the same access to God that Adam and Eve had in the garden, God chose to dwell among his people and is especially present with their gathered worship where they sing his praises. David said, I feel this way. I feel forsaken. It feels to me as if you're far away, but I know that you are the Holy One, that you've established this covenant, covenant relationship with your people, and I know that you are enthroned in the praises of your people, especially when we gather to worship you. I feel this way, but I know this to be true. I know that you make your dwelling among your people, and I know that I'm one of your people. I'm one of the true worshipers. He was conflicted. Do you feel the tension there? A sense of conflict. Here's how I feel, but here's what I know to be true. And he went further. He said, our fathers trusted in you. Our fathers put their trust in you and you came through for them. They trusted in you and you delivered. You answered their prayer. You rescued them. They were not put to shame when they put their trust in you. 
Have you ever felt foolish for trusting someone who proved to be untrustworthy? That's not a good feeling. Well, that will never be the case with the Lord. Those who put their trust in him will never be made foolish, will never be put to shame for doing so. Why? Because he's faithful. He comes through. He delivers. So our fathers put their trust in you and they were not put to shame because you rescued them. What did he have in mind? He doesn't say specifically. Perhaps, most likely, he was referring to the Exodus, which we read about in the book of Exodus, whereby God's people were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were oppressed. They were afflicted. They cried out to God and God rescued them. He delivered. He proved himself to be mightier than Pharaoh and his army. He came through. He delivered them. They were not put to shame. Whatever the case, David could look back and see how God was faithful to his people. So in the first five verses, we see this turmoil. On the one hand, David felt forsaken. On the other hand, he knew that God is faithful and that he is with his people. I do think that it is instructive for us to see that even amid his pain and turmoil, David did not fault God's character for his sense of forsakenness. He said, I feel this way. I feel forsaken. I feel like you're not answering. But I know who you are. The tension was real, but he didn't say, God, I feel this way because you are unfaithful. No, he reminded himself of God's character and nature. He reminded himself of God's acts in history on behalf of his people. Well, the turmoil continues in verses six through eight. After recounting the Lord's faithfulness, he returned to his present pain. And the reason for his pain comes into focus. He said, though our fathers trusted you and you delivered them, I am a worm and not a man. If you ever get to that point where you're saying, I am a worm and not a man, I think we can put that in the category of a bad day. <laughs> I have been brought low. I am a laughingstock. People make fun of me for my faith. They see me in trouble and mockingly say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. He was in a hard spot. He was in distress. And rather than helping him up, people kicked him while he was down. But even then, he didn't give in to despair. Instead, he kept looking back. In verses 9 to 10, he reminded himself again of the Lord's faithfulness. But this time it was different. He didn't merely recount the Lord's faithfulness to his people Israel. No, this time it was more personal. Look how personal this is. He said, you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. In other words, he said, I'm in turmoil. I'm in distress. I feel forsaken. But when I look back, I not only see your faithfulness to your people, Israel, but I also see your faithfulness to me. 
God, you have been faithful to me from the very beginning of my existence. David Gunderson writes, David's knowledge of God's care for him leaves David hopeful but confused. When he looks back, he sees God's protection. But when he looks around, he senses trouble nearby. It seems that God left just as trouble arrived. He went back and forth between lamenting his present pain and trying to find encouragement, remembering God's faithfulness. In verses 11 to 18, he unpacks his pain and suffering in greater detail. He began with a cry for help. He felt forsaken, so he prayed, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. God felt far, trouble felt near. Cries out to God for help. And he went on to describe his raging enemies and the physical toll it took on his body. James Hamilton writes, David uses metaphors to make his audience feel the powerful, sharp-fanged, razor-clawed nature of those who oppose him. He likens them to bulls, lions, dogs, and wild oxen. These metaphorical depictions show the strength and influence, the ripping and boasting, the plundering and stealing, and the devouring, dominating nature of David's enemies. The enemies are dangerous and have David surrounded. David describes himself with language that strongly suggests that his enemies left his lifeless corpse stripped naked on the ground. He is poured out like water. All his bones are separated. Heart melted like wax. His strength is as dry and lifeless as a broken piece of pottery. His tongue is no longer moist and moving, but still and stuck in his mouth. And he has been returned to the dust from which he was made. All his bones can be enumerated and his enemies gawk at him. His garments are divided up among those who have killed and stripped him. Lots are cast for his clothing. It's hard to imagine a more dire situation. There were times in David's life when he suffered for his own sin. But here, he describes suffering at the hands of others. In this case, he presents himself as the innocent sufferer who suffered at the hands of wicked men. Powerful, wicked men who taunted him and attacked him and left him for dead. By verse 18, we get it. It's like, okay, we got it. We get it. You feel forsaken. And now we can see why. But praise the Lord, that is not the end of the story. As David struggled with his present pain, agony, turmoil, and suffering, he remembered God's past faithfulness, but that is not all. He also looked to the future. In verse 19, the tide begins to turn. David knows the Lord has not abandoned him and cries out again, do not be far off, come to my aid, deliver my soul from the sword. And in verses 21 to 22, he looked forward with confidence, saying, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. This will happen. 
He prayed with confidence that God would answer his prayer and that he would be vindicated. He looked forward to the day when he would freely worship the Lord, praising his name in the congregation. His enemies who were powerful and menacing, who surrounded him and attacked him, who, were, who left him for dead, would not ultimately be victorious over him. He knew the Lord would save him. He knew the Lord would raise his body from the dust of death. He knew the Lord would give him victory. He knew he would be vindicated. He was confident in the Lord's salvation and the salvation the Lord would lead to praise. David said, I will praise you. Israel will praise you. All the families of the, of the earth will praise you. He is worthy to be praised. And he will be praised by the individual worshiper. He will be praised by the congregation of worshipers. Indeed, he will be praised by all the families to the ends of the earth because he is the king of the earth who is worthy of all praise. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this in your heart of hearts? He is worthy to be praised Oh, I hope that we do not gather together simply out of duty, but I hope that when we come together on the Lord's day to worship the Lord, we come with a deep and abiding conviction that we gather because he is worthy to be praised. I hope we are eager to come together to praise him in the congregation. He calls on us not to just praise him individually in our individual lives, but together. He calls on us to praise him together. So let's pray that we will be a people who are eager, who are enthusiastic, who come with a conviction that he is worthy to be praised. May our hearts desire, may they be inflamed with a love and a desire to praise and bring glory to his name. Oh, I love how this song, this psalm grows that escalates, I will praise you. Israel will praise you. The families of the earth will praise you. He is worthy of all praise. We have countless reasons to praise the Lord. In Psalm 22, we see that one of the reasons we praise him is because he has not despised or ignored those who are afflicted. He has not hidden his face from those who are in pain and are suffering. No, he sees them and cares for them, and their pain, agony, turmoil, and suffering will not be the final word. In verse 26, we read that the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Those who put their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. We may be mocked, we may be ridiculed, we may be opposed, but we will not ultimately and finally be put to shame. Those who put their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame, but will be fully satisfied as they live forever under the kingship of the Lord. 
verses 27 to 31, we see that the praise of the Lord will extend to the ends of the earth and down through the generations. He will receive praise from all nations and from future generations that are yet unborn. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And we read in Luke chapter 24 that he began to unpack for them from the scriptures how what happened to him was a fulfillment of all the scriptures. I told the men in the men's Bible study this last Wednesday evening that that was the single greatest Bible study in the history of humanity. we missed it. We weren't there. <laughs> Jesus unpacks from the scriptures, takes them to the scriptures, showing them how what happened to him was a fulfillment of all these things. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be be fulfilled. These things were written about Jesus. And it's hard to find a more clear example than Psalm 22. One thing that becomes abundantly clear in the Gospels, and especially in the Passion narratives, is that David's experience in Psalm 22 proved to be a type pointing forward to Christ. Psalm 22 finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 teaches us that sometimes the innocent suffer. The Gospels present Jesus. The Gospels teach us that no one has suffered who has been truly innocent like Jesus. Psalm 22 presents David as the innocent sufferer. The Gospels present Jesus as the innocent sufferer par excellence. When we read about the arrest, trial, torture, and execution of Jesus in Matthew 27, we see many references to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22:18, we read, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27:35 says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Psalm 22:7. Uh, David was mocked. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Matthew 27, 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. In Psalm 22, 8, David was mocked. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. In Matthew 27, 43, Jesus was mocked. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. And of course, as Jesus died on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22, 1, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men. They surrounded him, mocked him, beat him, stripped him, and left him for dead. And he felt the full weight of his forsakenness. Yet the reason Jesus, who was innocent, had to suffer was for our sake. See, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us is truly innocent. 
Every single one of us has sinned against God, just like Adam and Eve sinned against God and rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden. And because we have sinned against God, we've come under his just condemnation. He is the righteous judge of all the earth, and he must render right judgments. And we are those who are guilty. That presents a serious problem for us, a problem that we cannot resolve, a problem that we cannot fix. We cannot overcome our sin problem, which is our biggest problem. But thanks be to God that he provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. And he did so by sending Jesus Christ into the world as the savior of the world. In order for Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world, to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, he needed to live a perfectly sinless life. And he did so. Jesus is the only one to live a perfectly sinless life. And he perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law. And because he was innocent, because he was without sin, he was able to offer himself at the cross as the perfect sacrifice in our place. At the cross, God's justice was satisfied as he poured out his wrath on Christ for the sins of his people. Jesus was the ultimate innocent sufferer who suffered for our sake. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, read, for our sake, he made him, meaning God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, if you are not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Christ and be saved. You too are a sinner like the rest of us. Those of us who are Christians are not Christians because we're moral people, because we're better people. We're Christians because God has been merciful to us and has saved us in spite of our sin. If you're not a Christian, your hope for salvation will only be found in Jesus Christ. He suffered for our sake. Believe in Christ. Be saved. Jesus, the innocent sufferer par excellence, suffered for our sake. But praise the Lord, that was not the end of the story. His enemies would not be victorious because even though he was dead and buried, he was vindicated through the resurrection. His death was not the final word. God raised him from the dust of death. The one who was forsaken is alive and he lives forevermore. Praise the Lord. And now his name is praised among the nations and down through the generations. So, how do we apply this? What does this look like for us? First and foremost, we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. We rejoice in Christ, who was the innocent sufferer, who suffered for us, but was vindicated, who was raised from the dust of death and who lives forevermore and who gives us the gift of eternal life and victory over sin, death, and hell. We rejoice in him and we praise him. But that's not all. We continue to live in a sin-wrecked world. 
We continue to suffer for our own sins, and we suffer when others sin against us. We continue to experience the consequences of sin. And just as David suffered at the hands of wicked, of the wicked, which pointed to Christ suffering at the hands of the wicked, so too do God's people continue to suffer at times at the hands of wicked men. Sometimes when we suffer, God seems distant. He seems to be far off. It seems as though he does not hear or answer our prayers. So what do we do? What do we do when we are in pain, when we are in turmoil, when we suffer? First, we look to the past to see God's faithfulness. David said, our fathers trusted in you and they were not put to shame. He could look back and see what God did in the Exodus. But what do we look to when we look to the past? We live at a point in time whereby we see God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises in the coming of Jesus Christ. We have a fuller picture of God's redemptive plan. When God seems far off, we look back and say, but I remember how you sent Christ into the world. I remember how Christ lived a sinless life. I remember how Christ suffered and died at the, at the cross. I remember how God raised him from the dead and he was victorious. We're able to look back at what God has done in Jesus Christ and rejoice in the glory of the gospel. Forever tempted to doubt God's love, forever tempted to doubt that he's not with us, I think the best thing we could do is look back to the cross of Christ. Remember God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, we should never get over the gospel. We should never stop being amazed by what God has done for us in Christ. We continue to look back. We continue to remind ourselves of the beauty, the glory, the power, the wonder of the gospel. But we don't just look back in awe of how God fulfilled his promise in Christ. David looked back at God's faithfulness to his people, and he looked back at God's faithfulness to him in a deeply personal way. We, too, look back at what God has done for his people in Christ, but we also look back in a deeply personal way, and we say, God, you saved me. You saved me. If you are a Christian, he has forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. He has rendered a judgment that you are just based on the merits of Christ. He has adopted you into his family, and you are now his son or daughter. He is your loving heavenly father. You have a future with him that cannot be taken from you. We look back at God's faithfulness in Christ, and we look back and say, God, you have saved me. We should never get over the gospel, and we should never get over our own salvation. May we continually be amazed what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. When we are in turmoil, when we suffer at the hands of others, when we feel like God is distant, 
We remember that God has been faithful to us by looking back at the cross of Christ and our own salvation. By remembering our salvation, we remind ourselves that even on our worst day, the Lord has given us immeasurably better than we deserve. But that is not all. We also look to the future. We know that the pain, agony, and suffering we experience in this world are temporary. We know that we belong to the king, and one day we will enter his consummated kingdom once and for all. Even though we experience pain in the present, Christ has won the victory over sin, death, and hell for us, and we look forward to when we will enjoy the fullness of that victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 56, we read, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And what does God tell us about our future? In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. No more bad days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are worthy of all praise. And we praise you for the glory, the beauty, the wonder of the gospel. We thank you for Christ, the innocent sufferer who suffered at the hands of wicked men for our sake. We thank you that he was vindicated through the resurrection, that you demonstrated that you have accepted his sacrifice. And now all who trust in Christ will not be put to shame. We thank you for this. We pray that we will be a people who look to the past, remembering your faithfulness. We pray that we will be a people who look to the future, knowing that we will be with you in your kingdom for all eternity. May we hope in you, may we rejoice in you, may we delight in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.